Good morning. morning. I'm Steve Blummer. I'm the pastor of family and adults. This is the title they gave to me. I oversee parenting and marriage and oversee children's ministry with Mr. J, as well as life groups, adult discipleship, and a lot of other things that fall on my desk. And uh, so it's my pleasure to be bringing the message to you this morning. We've been hearing from Pastor Neil throughout this series through the book of Hebrews, and I'm the one that gets to finish it. So it's humbling and honoring to do so. If you've been around for a while, you know that Pastor Neil, he's a good leader, a good preacher and teacher of God's Word. We are very fortunate to have someone who's faithful to God's Word and who's able to make it practical and relevant week after week after week over the years. And so we are blessed to have both Pastor Neil and Christina here on staff at Hope Chapel. And so I just wanted to thank them and give honor to where our honor is due. Now we're trying to finish up the book of Hebrews next week, and so we're going to have to plow through chapter 12 today, go through chapter 13 next week, so that we can begin our Lent and Easter study at the end of February, because Lent is the last Wednesday of February. Lent is this man-made tradition of 40 days leading up into Easter. And so uh, it's a chance for us to prepare our hearts, our minds, our bodies for what Jesus did on the cross, as well as to respond to that with praise. And so you're not going to want to miss that. We'll have more details uh, next week. If you're just joining us, we are going through this book called Hebrews. It's in the New Testament. Jesus had died, he was buried, he rose again back to life. It's written to showcase how Jesus is better than everything. He's better than any spoken or written word about God ever before. Jesus is better than any example of faith that you can think about, including Abraham and all of these spiritual giants. Jesus is better than any religious system in the world. He's better than any sacrifice ever made for the forgiveness of sins. And there's so much that we've covered, we certainly can't review it this morning. Encourage you to go back online and listen to them on our uh, website, hopechapelsterling.org. Last week we saw in chapter 11, there's several Old Testament examples of men and women who were living by faith. We learned that faith is both believing and trusting in something, but also action through obedience. We've learned that faith is not always about outcomes. Things don't turn out how we might have wanted them to turn out. And sometimes we may not even see what God's plan is because we may die before his plan comes about just as the prophets only saw a glimpse of what God was doing. They never saw it actually happen. And so we've learned that faith often involves risk. And that's where we are now in chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. You can use the Bibles and the chairs underneath in front of you. This is on page 1069. 1069 in the Bibles that you're using in the chairs. I'm just going to jump right into the text. Chapter 12, let's read the first few verses. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance or weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't go weary and give up. Now, when we see this first word, therefore, we always have to pause and ask the question, what is it? Why? What is it? Therefore. And uh, the word is having us contemplate all that we've seen leading up to this and to do something with that knowledge. This is what we see in the scriptures over and over. Jesus, in the New Testament, he's quick to tag the application from his message. He tells this story, he tells a parable, and then it evokes a response. What are you going to do with what you just heard? The epistles, these letters from the apostles, they would go into length about this set of beliefs and doctrines, addressing any issues the church may have, and then they move into this section of practical application based upon such truths about God. The Bible is not an encyclopedia just letting us know who God is and what He's done. It's a handbook for us to view this world as God sees it. It's a manual for us to respond and know how to live life in this world while we're still here. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, based upon all that we've learned about Jesus, this is what we need to do. And he primarily sets the stage for us with these let us phrases. We've seen these in chapter 10 as well. But let us, let us lay aside every hindrance, every weight. Let us lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance this race that lies before us. These are two overarching ideas that you and I need to put on our action item to-do list. Every day when we wake up, we look at our calendar. What do we need to do today? These are the things we need to do every day. Lay aside every weight that's holding us down. Lay aside that hindrance. Lay aside that sin that so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance this race that sets before us. That's what we need to be doing every day. Once you've taken a hold of faith, once you understand that Jesus is better than anything then we've got to talk about what is our focus? What are we going to do? What we do with our day needs to be different than what we did with our day before we had this knowledge. What we do with our day needs to be different than those who don't have such a knowledge. Once we understand that we're not alone in this faith, once we understand that we're not the first person who has endured suffering and trials through a faith decision, then we can stop worrying and focusing and wondering what God is doing and just stay focused. When he says that we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, he's describing this athletic arena where you and I are runners on this track and there are tens and thousands of cheering onlookers in the stands. The only issue with this is that nowhere else in Scripture do we ever get the sense that those who have died and gone into heaven are looking out over us. But we're not completely sure. We do know that those who are in heaven with Jesus, they are praising him who is on the throne. They're in this constant state of worship and anticipation for the end of days when Jesus Christ will come back and have this new heaven and this new earth. We do know that angels are going back and forth between heaven and earth reporting back to God. We do know that there's a spiritual world that we can't see. But the writer is not telling us, hey, you need to be careful what you're doing because there's a bunch of dead saints watching over you when you don't think anybody's looking. If that was the motivation, then you and I just need to understand that God sees all things at all times. Someone once taught me as I was a working teenager 
to make sure that you never get caught doing nothing when the boss comes in. You know this principle? Anytime the boss walks in, you make sure you're, you're looking busy, even if there's nothing to do. <laughs> you're sweeping the floor, but it's clean, right? You're wiping down the countertops, even though it's not dirty. You're making sure yourself, you look busy. I tell my kids this all the time. It's a little motivation. I don't want them just to be busy because I walk in. I want them to be busy because God is always watching, and it's the right thing for them to do. If the writer wanted us to be motivated by, hey, there's someone watching you, he would have just said, God is watching you at, time, at all times, so be busy. But the writer of Hebrews is saying that there is a bunch of people who have lived a life of faith. They've endured suffering. They've endured some rough patches in their life, and they trusted God, and it turned out great. These people are examples, witnesses, testimonies for you and I that it's possible and even rewarding to trust and obey God. It's not just a few people. It's not just a few prayer warriors. It's a cloud. And it's really a fog because it surrounds us. What does it take to make a cloud? Millions and millions and millions of molecules. And they're all clustered together surrounding us to remind you, you're not alone. You can do this. The trials of people who have gone on before you is saying, you've got this. It's possible. And with that mindset, it, it changes how we view worry and stress. It changes how we view things that cause us frustrations and irritations. It's those things that weigh heavy on you and I. That we're able to take a hold of those things or we're able to lay them aside because we know that it's keeping us from running the race. The race is our focus. It changes how we view our work, how we view our money, how we view our house, our marriage, how we view our singleness, our kids, our grandkids, our neighbors. It changes how we relate to people who disagree with us, how we relate to people who are different than us. It changes how we view our own sin, how we acknowledge, hey, I've got sin in my life and I need to get rid of it. It's why we constantly go to God and go, God, reveal any sin that's in my life that I'm not aware of so that I can get a hold of it and I can get rid of it. We don't want this sin on us because it's trying to grab a hold of us. It's trying to drag us down. It's trying to injure us in this race that we're trying to tell other people about the salvation only through Jesus Christ. You and I are in a race. We're not on a cruise ship for salvation. We're not floating down a tube on a quiet river in Colorado. That sounds wonderful. But that's not what we're on. We're on a race. And the goal is to run. That race is already set before us, it says. The gates have already opened. The starting gun, bam, has already been fired. And so the question is, are you running? Or are we stuck at the starting block? What do I do? Have you kind of paused because you ran into a hurdle? How do I get over this thing? Have you taken the baton and you just thrown it down and said, I'm tired of running. What's the purpose of running? The writer of Hebrews is saying that we've got to keep our focus on the race. And in order to do that, we keep our eyes on Jesus. Because Jesus is our source, our perfecter, our author, our founder of faith. He's the one who did it perfectly. He's completely cleared our path for us to follow. 
Hebrews has been showing us over and over that Jesus has laid the foundation. He's cleared the path. He's made it straight. He's done everything as possible for it's easy for you to run. You have access to this coach, the trainer, every tools you need to run. And the reason that you and I slow down, the reason that we get off course is because we've taken our eyes off of Jesus and we've got sidetracked by all sorts of things. I thought about blinders that they put on horses. There's these blinders of these devices they put on the horse's head and they have these pieces of material that stick out on the side to block their side view. They put blinders on horses during the race as well as when they're not even racing. Blinders are used on racehorses to keep them their minds focused on that race. And in a race, a horse gets distracted by other horses, by all the people in the commotion, and even by the birds flying by. These blinders help a horse stay focused on the race, but really they stay focused on the rider, the jockey, who's guiding them. And horses wear blinders when they're not even racing to calm their fears and their anxiety because they're always on guard as a predator. And I didn't know any of this, but Deb Perini, who owns horses, helped me understand this. Horses are fearful animals, and their eyes primarily see sideways. <laughs> the only way they can see in front of them is when they look down at the path right where they are. Now, the Bible says that humanity is like sheep because we need a shepherd, but I think horses make a great analogy as well. We're like horses that we've got to put blinders on. We've got to be able to look at the path that's only in front of us, and we've got to trust the rider for guidance. Because we're like horses, we get so fearful of the things around us that oftentimes we're fear filled with worry and anxiety. We've put up our defenses up so that the moment something looks scary or risky, man, we're jumping, we're out of here, we're not sticking around. We're like horses. We have our eyes set to things all around us, and we get distracted by other horses. Oh, what are you doing? Let me go check it out. <laughs> we get distracted by anything that crosses our path. We get distracted by good things like work and wealth. We get distracted by such the little things that tempt us to sin. It's like a bird flying by, but for some of us, it may be just an image on social media or TV that the moment that just little glimpse of flies by, we are tempted to sin. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to get discouraged because we can't see the end of the path. I wish God would just reveal to me what's going on at the end of this path. All we've got to do is run what the path is right in front of us and trust the rider that's guiding us in this race. Once we understand what Jesus did on the cross, once we understand that we're no longer headed towards condemnation, once we understand that we can confidently go before the throne of God, then this is our focus. All that Jesus has done and all that Jesus is doing for us is for our benefit. What does it say at the end of verse 3? so that we won't grow weary and give up. Man, that sounds like a great benefit. That's what we want. We don't want to become weary. We don't want to become tired. We don't want to give up. There's plenty of things in life that can get us to become weary, to tired, exhausted, spiritually depleted, spiritually distracted. There's a lot of things that are going to try to get us discouraged, to lose hope, to stop loving, to stop caring. But none of that, none of it can have significant hold on us unless we get our eyes off Jesus and we begin to just focus on those things. 
and we allow our mind to run that race over and over and over and over. We can't take our eyes off of Jesus. We've got to put the blinders up when we need to. We've got to take a hold of every hindrance and every weight and every sin that ensnares us and get rid of it. We can't run this race like it's not affecting me, it's no big deal. It's slowing you down. We've got to get rid of it. Maybe you're saying, you know what, I'm keeping my eyes on Jesus, but it's not easy. I don't know what's going on, but I feel like maybe the rider has jumped onto another horse and left me abandoned. I don't know what's going on. Well, let's continue in our passage, verse 4. Verse 4. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And resisting sin, it's tough, but it's not so tough that you're shedding blood. And you have... And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, daughter, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly. Now, in this passage, you're going to notice the word discipline quite a bit. If you have your Bible, you can highlight it. We're going to find it eight times in this section. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good for them, but He does it for our benefit so that we can share in His holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but healed instead. The writer is combating this thought that if Jesus is greater and if he's already beaten sin, Satan, and death, and if Jesus is on our side and nothing can stand against Jesus, then how do you explain the manure that I'm stepping in? We're all horses. The writer's answer is that God is disciplining you. He's disciplining you. Now, we, we need to understand what discipline is. Discipline is not punishment. It's not a spanking. It's not scolding. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore, it has one of those key words as well, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Paul, the writer of Romans, he's ending chapter 7 with this talk about how he's not perfect. He sins. We all sin. He's doing the things that he doesn't want to do, and he's not doing the things that he knows he should do. But because it's not a balance between doing good works and bad works, but because it's about the forgiveness we get in Jesus Christ, this is not punishment. It's not judgment. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ's death on the cross paid for all your sins, every one of them, were completely forgiven. But there is discipline. 
Discipline is about training and educating. Training and educating. Discipline is about correcting you so that you can succeed better next time. And that's a huge difference. In verse 7, it said, endure suffering as discipline. You got to think about it differently. Don't think that God is out to get you. Don't think that God is punishing you for something you did long time ago. He's not now uh, dealing with you. You may be dealing with some natural consequences from the choices that you made before. There may be suffering that we're enduring because we live in a broken world around broken people as we are broken people as well on the inside. But if we have God in our lives and if we are in Jesus Christ, God is able to take any of those things and make it for our benefit and for his ultimate good. And so there's really nothing to worry about when it comes to suffering. God's using that suffering, that hardship, that struggle, that manure that we've stepped in to educate you and I, to train us, to correct us so that we can have a stronger faith in him, this deeper trust in him, this wider knowledge of his goodness and his faithfulness. And we should be grateful, really, for this training and educating. That's what the scriptures are saying, and that's really a hard one to grasp, right? If God is training us through our suffering, then we should be grateful for the discipline, even filled with joy. Because we know that God is doing it because he loves us, because we are his children. He's doing it for our benefit. This end result of peaceful fruit of righteousness, sharing in his holiness. That's a huge difference of how we view suffering. And just think about it. God is training you. He's educating you because you are his child if you've accepted Jesus Christ. Once you've accepted Christ's gift of salvation, we are adopted into his family with all the, the privileges and inheritance that belongs to that. Before Christ, we're not a part of his family. We're not all God's children. We're part of his creation, but we are not his children until we are born again through Jesus Christ. And if you aren't receiving discipline, then it should be almost discouraging to think about that because maybe you aren't a child of his. He calls us illegitimate children, thinking that we are his, but we're not. And so maybe you're thinking, hey, man, my life's really good. I'm doing whatever I want, and things just seem to be good. <laughs> well, maybe, just maybe, God isn't disciplining you because you aren't his. See, as a father, I discipline my own children. If my children are hanging out with a group of people and they do something that's not right, I'm disciplining my children. I'm setting boundaries for my children. Other children may be around, and they're going to hear what I have to say but I'm not disciplining children who aren't mine. And God is disciplining those who are his and only his because he loves them and he wants them to be blessed. It certainly doesn't feel enjoyable at the moment, right? Can we admit that? Let's be honest. Suffering is not enjoyable. But the end result of struggle and discipline is something that does make us stronger, a believer in God, and is able to help us run this race that we're on. It gives us insights and perspectives not to get beat up by our situations and circumstances. What's going on in my life? I don't have to worry about that part. I've got the writer who's guiding me, and he tells me just to look at the path in front of me. It allows us to strengthen the parts that are weakened and to heal the parts that are hurt. 
I like how God's word is like athletic tape that you can wrap around your wrist or your knees or ankles, those parts that are weak, so that you can get back in the game and you can keep playing. All right, let's get to the last section. Here we go. We're going to finish up chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with everyone in holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble and defiling many. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word would be spoken, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it would be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to a city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And what is he saying here? This section kind of merges all of these thoughts together. Our focus is to be on Jesus. Our focus is to be on this race. We're to be watching out for the distractions, the things that can hold us up from running the race. And God is helping us to do all of that. We don't have to be scared of God, but we do have to take seriously our faith. We've got to help one another out in this journey so that no one falls down. This race that you and I are on, it's not a competition against one another. It's a race that we run together. And so if we're running a race and we see someone hobbling along, man, we're there to help them. We don't just keep walking by and say, I hope that person's okay. <laughs> we check up on them. How are they doing? They may be close to wanting just to give up where they are. They're hurt. They're distracted from the truth. And left alone, the Bible says it can turn to bitterness and anger. And if you allow that to grow, it's going to take a lot of people down. So you and I, we can look around and say, this is our team. This is the race we're running together. We need each other. We can't treat our spiritual life of ours like it's not important. It's important. 
This story about Esau. Esau was an older twin brother who had this great future awaiting for him because he was born into a great family. His inheritance was going to be very, very large. But he didn't take it seriously, and he sold his birthright to his younger brother for a bowl of soup because he had this hunger one day. He gave away what was precious for a temporary fix of an inner hunger. The struggles that you and I are going through, the sin that we're battling with, we've got to get rid of it. It's not a reason for us to give up on our spiritual walk with God and give away things that are precious. That's what God is calling us to do. The writer is saying that God isn't this big, scary father boss like he seemed to be in the Old Testament. We don't come to God out of fear. We come to him out of love and grace. It wasn't like when Moses encountered God on Mount Sinai as he received the laws and the Ten Commandments. We meet God through Jesus' love and grace. It says it's like a celebration of a myriad of angels, this festival. Yet, God is still the judge of all. God is still the one who shook the earth with his voice. He's still the one that brought judgment to those who rejected him. He's still the one who promised that he's going to do it once more, where he will execute judgment on those who reject him. See, at that time, all of creation is going to be shaken, and only those who are his, his children, only those whose names are written in the book of life, only those who have trusted and followed after Jesus, only those will remain. And that's something that we can't ignore. That's not something we can be flipping about. It's not something we can disregard. It's real and it will happen. My Monday night life group, we're nearly finished up through the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. It's been a long study and there's a lot of stuff in there. We have still no idea what it means. But we are confident and it's very clear that this world is coming to an end in a devastating way. God is holding out because he wants as many people as possible to fit and to come in, to call out to him. But we read that a lot of people, they're going to reject him, they curse him, they blame him. And there comes a time when God says, all right, it's time. And then there's no more time. No more time for repentance. Our God is a consuming fire. It ends in this chapter. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I'm going to have you look to it, it'll be up on the screen, I encourage you to write that down, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7, it says, This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels, when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed. We set our eyes on Jesus on eternity. We can't ignore the world around us, that's for sure, but we can view all of these things that happen in our life in light of our faith in Jesus. It's about choosing God's kingdom and it's ensuring that no one falls short of the faith in Jesus, that no one's falling short of entering in that eternal life with God. It's about choosing his righteousness over being right. It's about asking and offering forgiveness. 
It's about seeing big problems and little irritations as something that we don't hold on to because, man, some of that things can get a root of seed of bitterness and we need to allow it to, to grow it. We're nurturing it and it's going to grow up and it's going to knock us down. It's going to take other people down with us. We see our time on earth as short. And so we don't procrastinate. We don't take lightly this precious gift. We don't exchange the long-term blessings of God for short-term enjoyment and satisfaction. We don't get distracted by sufferings and hardships in our life. We endure them and we even embrace them, knowing that God's involved and He is bigger and He is better. Knowing that He uses those things to train us, to educate us, to correct us. He uses those things to strengthen us so that we don't get knocked down so easily. And so we ask ourselves, what difference does it make that I'm doing today for God? What difference does it make what I'm doing for God in 10 years? What difference does it make for God that I'm doing right now for eternity? Am I running the race? Have I taken my spot on the race so that the population in hell will not increase anymore? That's our goal. Lay aside every weight, lay aside every sin that ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let me pray. God, we, we are always challenged by your word when we read your word. But we can also rejoice in seeing things differently. And God, I am sure that there are people listening to this right now who, whose lives, they have lots of hardships and struggles and things that are weighing them down, things that are, are really frustrating and irritating. Whether it's in a relationship or at their work or with their finances, so many things that are getting us off focus from the race that is set before us. So God, we need your help to know how to put up blinders, to not be distracted by these things, but just to look at the path in front of us and trust that you are the writer, that you are guiding us. So we need your help to do that. God, we're thankful for this cloud of witnesses that are surrounding us, cheering us on, letting us know we can do this. And then we also look around, and this is our team. This is our team. And God, if we see someone who's struggling, may we go to them and encourage them, and help them out in any way possible. And if we're hurting and we're struggling, don't let us fake it. Call out to help. Hey, I need some help. Help me run this race. God, let us take serious our faith. Let us take serious our faith so we can run this race proudly. God, if there are people here today who do not know 100% whether they are your child, I pray that they would reach out to you now. And that they would know that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for their forgiveness of sins. And all they have to do is to call out, to ask for that forgiveness, to believe that that is true, that you are God, you died on the cross for their sins. And they can ask for your forgiveness and you will forgive them. And at that moment, you would enter into their life and you would adopt them as their new son and daughter into your family. 
And God, we want to be with those angels that rejoice at such a decision that we made. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.